Shh, kitty. Bad timing. Hello, protocols, packets, and programs. Welcome to October, when tales of terror become timely and horror marks our days to Halloween. We've seen the tropes of cars that won't start and slashers that step out of the shadows, the groups that split up, and the characters who check out dimly lit basements. The really fun movies turn those tropes into unexpected tension and misdirection, and the really, really fun ones always have that one last scare— like the one just after the acceptance tests return success and code gets pushed to production. Which means, this week we chat with Dan Moore about OAuth, WebAuthn, and the design choices in creating authentication mechanisms that protect users and the developers use. In the news segment, an Okta breach, SolarWinds Vulns, security factors of CISOs and boards, lessons in business logic, updated guidance on secure design, and more. Wait for the jump scare, and stay tuned for Application Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly, for security professionals, by security professionals. It's the show to learn the latest tools and techniques to understand DevOps, applications, and the cloud. Your trusted source for the latest AppSec news, it's time for Application Security Weekly. Created in 2005 and hosted by security industry veterans, Paul Security Weekly is your source for in-depth coverage of the latest vulnerabilities, exploits, and security research. Our weekly security news discussion dives deep into the security issues we face today and potential solutions in a fun and lively atmosphere. Each week, we bring on guests from the security community to learn about their journey and discuss topics relevant to their work and research. You can also subscribe to our show by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe or look for Paul Security Weekly in your favorite podcast catcher. We've recorded a ton of content over the years, so we created Spotify playlists featuring some of our favorite episodes, including interviews with Marcus Random, John McAfee, and Chris Roberts, to name a few. You can find them at securityweekly.com forward slash starter packs. This is episode 260, recorded October 23rd, 2023. I'm your host, Mike Shima, and I'm here with, just checking the shadows, John Kinsella. Still here. The machine's actually working. Good to see you. Happy Monday. Hope our listeners are doing well. Happy Monday. Good to see you, John. Uh, we have no announcements because we want to go straight into talking with Dan. Dan Moore, in fact, is head of developer relations for FusionAuth and currently helps educate developers about authentication and OAuth. He's written, contributed to, or edited a number of books. A former CTO, technical trainer, engineering manager, and longtime developer, Dan has been writing software for over 20 years. Hello, Dan. Thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks so much for having me back. Indeed, we, we last spoke with you beginning of the year, back on uh, January 9th, episode 225, where we also did talk about some OAuth again, and this time we're revisiting the topic with uh, what I hinted at a little bit in that intro. I wanted to dive into some of the design choices and maybe a compare and contrast between OAuth, WebAuthn, talk a bit about threat models and kind of how do we get developers to use this? Because we want to protect our users. So um, I just rattled off a bunch of questions. Hope you're taking notes. John and I are going to sit back and just let you start chatting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. So I think one thing that's really worth staying kind of at the start of this, and we talked about this previously, is OAuth is this huge sprawling framework, right? It's an authorization yeah. framework and lots of things have been built on top of it. So when we compare OAuth to say WebAuthn, we're really talking about OAuth plus OIDC, and we're talking about like logging in, 
right? Because you can use OAuth to protect APIs, all kinds of other things fit into OAuth. So for your listeners, I just want them to be kind of super clear that we're not talking about OAuth in general, we're talking about OAuth for logins. Um, and then the second thing I would say is, you know, in some ways, I think comparing, well, how do I put this politely? Um, OAuth is, I wouldn't say it's gray in the tooth, right? It's not that old, but compared to something like WebAuthn, it lived in a different world. It was first, OAuth 2 was first started in 2012, or it was, it was codified in 2012, and that means that, uh, you know, you're in a world without, you know, not much cloud, right? Certainly no serverless frameworks. Lambda was introduced in 2014, um, AWS Lambda, sorry. Um, and mobile apps were, you know, big, but um, I think that a lot of the stuff around single page applications was less big. Um, so, but anyway, um, OAuth made some choices around flexibility and to encourage uptake that I think um, if they'd had perfect foresight, they might have done things a little bit differently. Um, an example of that I think would be the grant choices that are available. Uh, the resource owner password grant is one that basically is like a pass through the username and password. And the whole point of OAuth is to delegate kind of the authorization process, the authentication process, OAuth slash OADC, is to get, delegate that to a secure kind of third party, right? And that could be, well, third party is wrong, third party piece of software. Um, whereas the resource owner password grant means that you're basically passing the credentials through your uh, your client application. And that was a choice I think that they're phasing out, but it was made because they wanted to be able to bring any old application into the OAuth world and still have it use a grant and some of those other kind of secure uh, by design functionalities. Yeah, I think, and you've given us some great history. I'm, I'm glad you started back in, you know, a decade ago where this is beginning because, and I want to explore a little bit of what was the environment, what did the, the security ecosystem look like that? Because it is interesting to see what the, the evolution of OAuth 2. So we'll come back to evolution, but back in these primordial times, you're talking about these grants, you know, the, the Tell us a little bit about what was insecure about these. For example, the explicit grants and why, you know, it's great for adoption, but if it's, you know, running around in browsers and URL parameters, that, that can get risky. Yeah, so the implicit grant is one that was also specified in that kind of initial RFC 6749, if any of your listeners want to go and read an RFC <laughs> from 2012. Um, and the idea there is that you... So, so actually, let's take a step back. O OAuth is all about give it, giving um, access to resources, and you end up getting a token as part of these grants, which are basically just like data flows through architectural components that OAuth specifies. And this token is a time-bound credential. So it's not like a username and password, which are credentials that are basically good until someone changes the password. It has an explicit time component to it. It's not good before a certain time period. It's not good after a certain time period. So that token is uh, often, but not always, like a car key, right? So you can, hand, you can hand it to anybody and you can hand a car key to anybody and, and they, as long as they have access to their, the car, they can turn that on. A token, if, you, if an attacker gets it or um, it gets put in a log file and someone else finds that, then that can be 
um, presented to the protected resource and will be treated like a normal, um, correct uh, user presented it, right? Because the protected resource doesn't have any way to like verify who's presenting it necessarily. So in that context, the implicit grant is one where you end up with this token on the URL. And then the, a JavaScript component can pull that from the URL and present that around to different APIs to get access. So the issue with the implicit grant is if you are presenting something that's accessible to JavaScript, you are presenting something that's accessible to any JavaScript running the browser, which means that unless you validate all your dependencies and nobody from marketing has stuck something in that uses a third party, third party, third party dependency that happens to be uh, something an attacker can get access to, um, then you're not sure who's getting access to that token. So the whole reason for the implicit grant was because single page applications were started, which is, sorry, single page applications are applications where it's like a rich JavaScript application, like a React or an Angular. And I don't know when React was released, but there were definitely um, some richer single page applications that were starting to happen in 2012, 2013, and they wanted to be able to support those applications being able to make API calls. And so the implicit grant was a solution for that. But in 2015, they realized, you know, some of the exfiltration stories and issues. Um, and so they came up with something called the Pixie grant, which stands for proof key of code exchange. And that's a situation where, um, or it's, it's a additional part of the OAuth framework kind of layer on top that helps you um, control who has, you know, uh, this sorry it helps you prove that you're the initial caller when you get that token and so that's now the suggested way for single page applications to actually get a token yeah so i think um and uh, quick comment there's a little bit of pop from your mic um so a little cautious there uh, but yeah and what you're d describing too what what is interesting I, what i want to pull out of this conversation is just the idea of the, the replay the theft you know cross-site scripting, or just if you know, the same origin policy works for everything running within that same origin. And as you mentioned, if you're, if you're just running third-party JavaScript in your environment, you know, in, in, in that rule, is you're going to get that, that, that token. These are not the leaks you want to see. And you described Pixie. We'll come back to Pixie in a second, but there's also, you know, maybe uh, could tell us a little bit about like OAuth, OAuth 2.0, there's kind of an ebb and flow of how the standard changed. I believe they probably also try to deprecate some features. So there's this trade-off between, please stop using these type of grants, please start using Pixie. I'm curious if you could maybe add, a, add some color, tell us a little bit about how you've observed developers adopting that and the reaction to, it's one thing to have the standard and the standards body say this, it's another thing for the real world to reflect that. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is a kind of a, a rough thing because once a standard is kind of decided on, right, by the IATF folks, it's not magically like rolled out across 100% of the world, <laughs> no. as, as we all know. So the way I, th I see it is there's really a kind of three things that happen. First is the standard gets thrashed out, and that all happens in the IATF mailing list or other mailing lists, right? So uh, well, not all of it. A lot of it happens in mailing lists, which is really great because it's public, it's URL accessible, anybody can kind of go lurk on those those yeah, mailing lists. 
There are also regular in-person meetings of the IETF and the other bodies where people, you know, have higher bandwidth conversations. And I have not actually had the luxury of going to any of those, but I know they exist because people reference them on the mailing lists. Then once a standard is kind of arrived at, then there's implementation, right? And so sometimes before a standard is um, approved, they actually ask for who has implemented this, right? So people can be ahead of a standard, right? So people can, for example, with Pixie, in, which was, uh, I think 2015 is when it was rolled out, people could actually build ahead of that, right? Because they could see where their standard was going because they were watching the mailing list and they would say, oh, you know, these are some of the implementation issues we found or this has worked really well. And that feeds back into the standards process. But some people wait until something's stamped with the RFC, then they implement it, and then you need to educate, right? And you mentioned kind of in my intro that I get to help educate people about authentication. That's great. Um, there's so many different ways to educate developers. We're a sprawling group. Some people are always reading about things and kind of come up on the, the bleeding edge. Other people have been bitten by the bleeding edge and want to like take a step back and wait for the vendors to kind of push it out. Other people are working on systems that might not be as, uh, you know, not, might not be able to be upgraded, right? So, but that developer awareness piece is, is really important too. So that's kind of the flow I see. Unfortunately, I can't point to any like, you know, it's, it's hard to like point to any studies or anything like that that say this is exactly how stuff gets um, rolled out, but that's been my experience. Yeah, I think the, the, the only thing we've seen lucky is the, the browser vendors, browser developers, pushing out and deprecating the way they're handling like SHA-1 certs or require, you know, forcing HTTPS traffic. So that's the big broad way, but obviously that's very different layer and uh, disconnected from OAuth. Speaking of Pixie, um, I do want to get into WebAuthn. I think Pixie is going to be maybe a way to get there. Talking about the crypto aspect of it. So maybe you could walk us through a little bit of Pixie's approach to a secure design to say, here was a problem with replaying codes or misusing, I'll say, that might be strong of a word, of how, or maybe surprising users, how they're trying to use OAuth within mobile apps when it wasn't designed with that type of pattern. So maybe walk us through a little bit of Pixie and we can start to understand that a bit. Sure. So one thing that's worth saying is that Pixie is part of the authorization code grant. And a key part of the authorization code grant is that you end up, you, you kind of start the process and as a client, and then you send the user over to the authorization server, and then that's where they authenticate. And the authorization server then sends you back, sends the user back to the client, and the client then um, completes the, the, the grant. And so part of the issue was that that you're basically making two separate requests over a stateless protocol, right, which is HTTP, HTTPS, and there were issues with attackers intercepting that second request and then making that follow-on request, the, the, the follow-on, um, you know, kind of finishing up the grant as if they were that initial person. And that's called the authorization code intercept attack, I believe. And so what Pixie does is basically when you're starting out the authorization code grant, you say, I'm going to create this uh, random string and then I'm going to hash it. So it's a one-way hash and then I'm going to pass that hash up to the authorization code grant or to, sorry, to the authorization server. And then the authorization server is going to store it off. And then when that second step happens, 
I present that unhashed string. And then I and then the authorization code, uh, sorry, the authorization server can verif can know that at the very least the same entity that started the grant is the one that is completing it because you can't make up, uh, you know, you couldn't possibly because of the one way nature of hashes and the lack of, um, uh, because they, they don't collide, you can't possibly um, have an attacker do that. And this is something that was layered on in 2015 when Pixie was kind of standardized that wasn't really possible when OAuth was first there because the cryptographic capabilities of single page applications were not really there yet. Um, you know, browsers basically didn't have the yeah, crypto, crypto API wasn't in you know, there, widely right? supported APIs. So, yeah. yeah. Is that what you were kind of looking for? Uh, absolutely. And, I, you know, one of the things now is sort of take that step to WebAuthN. And, you know, in the beginning, I sort of compared the two. And maybe from an end user perspective, it's sort of like, oh, do I just, you know, am I signing with Apple, signing with Google? I'm just, you know, I'm getting a passkey versus OAuth. They don't. They don't necessarily need to even appreciate the distinctions here, but there are clearly, if you're a developer, implementation differences. There's possibly some different threat models around them too. What they address and don't address. So maybe let's talk about you know riffing off of that interception aspect that was a, that was Pixie was designed to to present prevent. Um, tell us a little bit about WebAuthn and, and perhaps in a bit of compare and contrast with OAuth. Yeah, I think WebAuthn has learned some of the lessons from OAuth, right? And one of the things that it's tried to do is make the protocol unfishable um, because there are things that the user just doesn't even get access to. Um, that basically, the way WebAuthn works at a very high level is that you have some um, basically cryptographic module somewhere and a website starts out and sends some things down and the cryptographic module, which is embedded in your device or could be an external thing like a YubiKey, um, basically stores some values and then sends, then um, sign, creates a private key and then signs um, the data that was sent down and passes that back up to the server. And this is all done through JavaScript native APIs, right? So it's built into the browser. And when we were implementing it at FusionAuth, the developer who, who built out it for us basically said the hardest part was marshaling and unmarshaling, marshaling, sorry, excuse me. The hardest part was marshaling and unmarshaling base64 to like JavaScript binary values. <laughs> it, was, it was not, it's a very well-defined protocol. And I think that we're gonna put the link to the spec in the, the show notes. Um, they, they did a lot of thought, right? And um, so the fact that that private key stays on the device and doesn't and a user doesn't even have the option to like i mean maybe you can delete them but you can't look at them and it certainly isn't something you can share um combined with the other thing that i think webauthn did really right which is the the this whole kind of um process is tied to an origin and tied to https means that you have like strong assurances right um that HTTPS is actually something that you, OAuth didn't have the luxury of having because HTTPS wasn't as widespread in 2012. But WebAuthn, which came out in 2021, was actually like the, the first stamp of the version two of the spec. Um, 
2022 or sorry 2021 like HTTPS was everywhere and so they could afford to say hey you have to be over HTTPS um, and so because it's built into the, the it, this is an example of secure by default you cannot even if, if I if, if someone has google.com and they have a passkey associated with it and I register Google but it's like one of those um, oh. Like an IDN oh, homomorphic attack, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It, it, the the software is going to know, right? The software is so the software is never going to present the option for me to log in with a for a user log with a passkey on my yep. fished site or my phishing uh, spear phishing site or whatever, right? So um, that's one of the things that I think WebAuthn took some lessons from all the OAuth and other authentication things that have happened over the years and made things even more secure because of where they were in time. What's interesting too is that um, you know there, there's also a long OAuth has been around for longer, and you were describing too OAuth had a lot of options. There are a lot of different ways you could use this part of the standard, perhaps this part of the standard, adopt this emerging part. Where WebAuth N. Uh, it seems pretty strict. Oh, that could be also, you know, an artifact of it being relatively new. But I think if we talk about like secure by design, limiting developer choices seems like a good approach. Maybe not. Maybe helpful. You know, how, when how do you see, you know, the 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 the, the comparison between those two? Yeah, I mean, I think that as we alluded to at the very beginning, I think OAuth was designed to solve a broader problem. And so I don't think it would have had the adoption it had without that flexibility. Um, I think WebAuthn is still kind of early days to see how much um, uptake it's going to get. It certainly seems to have a lot of support from the vendors. I think they're, the one issue I see that's kind of in front of WebAuthn and its broader adoption is how do you securely share those private keys across different devices? Because there's an account recovery aspect that is a really tough thing. Um, I think WebAuthn is fantastic for a way to accelerate login, but as far as like being the only form of login, I have some worries about that, right? Because what happens if you drop your phone um, and that's the one way you were able to get into your bank with a passkey that's tied right to that phone? But obviously sharing private keys is, is scary too. Um, but I guess in the in the larger sense, how do I put this? Um, I think that it is an amazing thing to do to constrain developer choice if you know, if you believe that you have the right way to solve the problem. And if you don't, then you're in more of an exploratory phase. And so you need to kind of give the developers the ability to explore so they can kind of arrive at the right decision. And so I think OAuth was in that latter camp in WebAuthn because it's a more narrow problem and because it's benefited from years of, I mean, Fido 2 came out in 2012, 2011 in that same time frame, and basically didn't get a lot of success until they did kind of the WebAuthn excuse me, I'm sorry, this morning, um, the WebAuthn thing, um, which happened, you know, eight years after. So uh, if you have a constrained space, constraining the developers is, is, a, is a really great idea. If you don't, then you're going to end up with a solution that people don't want. Yeah, and that's an interesting angle too, because how much does like to broaden it to, or more generalize what you're saying? You know, how much does security just say implement the way we said it, versus developers understand what are design patterns, what works with your application, what how what works with your user base, what works with your workflows and the account recovery too. 
WebAuthn does have some of that benefit of watching mm-hmm. some of the mistakes, the difficulties, the friction of OAuth. So it's not like it came out of nowhere, it seems, to, to mandate thou shalt only you know, implement this way. But it does seem it does feel a little bit of those worrisome things that like what if you know what if there was something a, a flaw in that and we need the web off 2.1 or the web off 3.0 to address those problems and I'm curious you know you, you've seen that with OAuth and a lot of the standards that emerged we were talking about pixies I'm curious if you were to look at back at OAuth what would be some maybe of those secure design secure by design choices or those aspects especially of account recovery that maybe either one doesn't do it very well at all. Yeah, I mean, account recovery is one of those things that hasn't been standardized as far as I know at all. And so everyone's kind of doing the best they can. There may be something in the best current practices, but I, I haven't seen it. It doesn't um, come out, or the OWASP stuff, it doesn't come out of my mind. So, um, but I will say around some of those other things, we talked about the implicit grant being a bad idea anymore. There's actually a spec out there called OAuth 2.1, which is trying to codify some of these pieces, right? And so it's doing things like saying, hey, these grants are deprecated, or uh, there's this concept of a refresh token. And a refresh token is something that you can request at the beginning of the authentication process, and then you get it as a client, and then you can basically silently re-authenticate and get new access tokens over time. Because as I mentioned, an access token is time-bound. A refresh token is, is time-bound for longer. So it might be a month, whereas an access token might be good for a day, but the refresh, to- or ne- you should make your access token for good for a day, sorry, like minutes or, or like uh, uh, seconds. Anyway, you can take the refresh token, you can present it to the authorization server, get new access tokens. Um, in OAuth 2.1, they have a recommendation that you either rotate your refresh tokens regularly or that you have them bound the client cryptographically. And that's an example, I think, of the standards process, again, acknowledging, hey, there was an issue here, we found this security attack, and or this is just a really good practice to have, right, to rotate things regularly. And so that's what we want to move forward with. I don't know if I quite answer your question, but I, def- I definitely want to work in OAuth 2.1 because it's been in process for a couple of years, and I think it's going to be a great um, set of like codified learnings over the last 10 years of OAuth. What I want to work in here, um, I'm just sort of, I'm, 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 I'm sitting quiet and letting you two guys have this conversation because partially it's not my favorite <laughs> area, but at the same time, I think how I think about this type of stuff is a little terrible. I'm sorry to be honest. Um, uh, but sort of, I'm thinking through like right now, I've got two questions for you. First one, I'm thinking through the last few projects where I've had to create, um, you know, like an enterprise scale project where we've had to do authentication. I've never picked to work with these things directly, um, right? So one, most, most of us, I think in, in modern libraries or modern development will be using some sort of OAuth library or something like that, or hopefully nowadays WebAuthn. But the thought that came to my head was really sort of, um, caught me was when you mentioned around the standardized account recovery. Um, and if I'm looking for a library, one of the things I found, I can't remember the name, but like I remember like going, oh, there's libraries out there that won't just do the authentication, but hey, they've added some of this stuff in. So um, I'm, I'm mentioning there just for our listeners from a point of view of, you know, you don't have to go to do the the best job you can possibly in some of these cases. Try and rewrite the stuff. Um, look around. If you're in that position where you're trying to figure out how to do this stuff right, figure out is there is there a module out there that will work for you? Um, 
and sometimes that's going to save you. It, it's it's a double edged sword, right? Because sometimes you're going to go down the, the path and pick something like Cognito and realize you made a mistake. Um, but sometimes you might go down another path. I'm just killing everyone here today. Um, uh, at some point, times you might go down a path and realize, hey, this is wonderful and really great for me. But it's, I mean, this is so core to your application. There's something people need to think about a lot. Um, and I'll shut up there for a second, see if you have comments on, on that you know, so far. I mean, from my perspective, I 100% agree. A little bit of where I'm standing is based on where I'm sitting, right? We at FusionAuth are an identity provider that people can snap into their applications, like a Cognito or, or other ones. Um, but there are plenty of open source libraries and components out there that are good options to evaluate too. Um, I, I am of the opinion that rolling your own auth um, is in 2023 about as good an idea as rolling your own database is was in 2000, right? Like it's something you could do, um, probably not a great idea. Um, there's just so much, you know, and again, I, I don't, I, I can name options if you want me to, but really I, I think you should go look at these things because as you alluded to, John, it's not just about security, it's about functionality, right? Like, so we have done some things around our change password uh, functionality um, in terms of, you know, here's a great example, right? Like um, you need to make sure that when someone requests a change password uh, request, um, you know, if they request it multiple times, you need to make a decision about, well, does the second one invalidate the first one? or the third one and validate the second one. And that is the kind of thing that is, you know, super detailed and might not ever affect things, but it could be uh, a possible attack vector in some, in some ways, right? Or another example is if you have MFA involved, you could have MFA where, um, and you allow email as a form of MFA, you could have the email address go to, um, that you log in with be the same one that's used for MFA, but that's a, threat vector, as opposed to if you allow separate email addresses to be associated with MFA. Um, and there are all these little, little details that the people who create and maintain these open source packages or commercial packages like FusionAuth and others or Cognitos, you know, all those folks, like think about this a lot more than you will. The same way that people think about database indexes and like where stuff lives on disk a lot more than I ever will as an application developer. Um, both those you get to leverage, right? Like that's, that's the benefit of being a software developer is you get to stand on the shoulder of giants. And that maybe tell us a little bit about the, the, like the OAuth 2.1. Cause I, what I heard was a little bit of hardening guide, um, which always makes me, you know, I, makes me worried about that because that sounds like now we have to, we're, we're trying to maintain Mr. Kinsella's interest and, um, you know, just talking about the, the cryptographic principles between, you know, anchoring WebAuthn to the client to the the domain name is is cool, I think. But he, you know, as he mentioned, the developer perspective: what's the library? How easy? How easy it is it to use? And I'm going to predict. Hopefully, I'm right. You know, he's going to say, well, I don't want to have to go through even a three-step, 10-step, 20-step process to read yet another RFC about the, the hardening. So what does that look like from, from 2.1 perspective? Yeah, so because it's not actually, it's still in that thrashing out phase, mm -hmm. you know, it's not entirely clear. Um, you know, one of the things we've talked about internally at, our, at my company is having a, uh, like a, 
checkbox where it says, hey, turn on all the OAuth 2.1 stuff and we will, or more likely turn off all the OAuth 2.0 stuff and we'll be compliant with OAuth 2.1. Um, you know, at this point, you're also dealing with backwards compatibility, right? So people have built on things like the implicit flow or other things like that, and you want to push them as best you can. So, uh, but you also don't want to break their applications because the nature of authentication, and again, John, you made a great point about it being core, that uh, very often people who are integrating authentication server or server um, a standard into their application want to just integrate it once and be done, right? Because th that, that's the win. And then they want to go on and keep building the features and the applications that their product managers, their customers are telling them to do. And so you're weighing this thing of making things more secure and encouraging people to be more secure, but um, also not really pissing them off when things break because they didn't read the detailed release notes, right? So uh, I don't have any great answers other than to, to think that it has to, it has to happen and you, you have to kind of do it as gently as possible over time. I was just uh, checking while I am entertained this conversation. I'd seen something in my uh, um, uh, news stories this morning. Uh, Monday.com is actually bragging about having created their own database. So people <laughs> still are doing that in, in 2023. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I haven't read the article. Sweet summer so child. For, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but where I did want to go back to um, we're, we're bouncing around here a little bit. I hope it, it's um, something our, our listeners and viewers can follow. Um, when we think about WebAuthn, um, I do sort of associate to a degree with passkeys, which are also sort of one of the, the you know popular things which everyone's talking about recently. Um, but one of the areas about of popularity is how do they fit into an enterprise? So you've touched upon this. I'm, I'm, where I'm going with this, I'm curious to hear, because you know, Mike mentioned, do we have maybe the possibility for WebAuth um, 2.1? Actually, you said OAuth 2.1, but I'm thinking about, is there a 0.1 or even a, a next major version coming up for WebAuth N? From the point of view of, um, it feels like the standard which was ratified didn't really take enterprise into, into account. How do you do enterprise control on these pass keys? Um, you mentioned if you lose your phone, I know like uh, iCloud and um, uh, Google or have the ability to like sync these through the cloud and get stuff out. So yeah, I do pay attention to stuff. Um, but so how does how does an enterprise deal with this yet? Or have you seen anyone going down this path? I know some are thinking about it, but they're sort of looking at it going, it's not quite what we want yet. So where do they Yeah, go? I mean, the only thing that I've seen that was in the two spec, and actually they are working on a three spec right now, WebAuthn 3. Mm -hmm. I took a brief glance at it, I couldn't see any huge differences between WebAuthn 2 and WebAuthn 3, at least the parts that I looked at kind of in depth. Um, there was no diff, which I really wish they would do a diff of, of specs. That would be really great. Um, but the only thing that I know was in WebAuthn 2 that was really enterprise is that um, you can actually get a cryptographic, cryptographic chain of um, like a cert chain around the private key that the Authenticator, which is that thing that generates the private public key, yeah, private public key, which is used in WebAuthn, where the public key is stored in the in the website, and the private key is stored on the device. You can actually have a chain up there for that, and there are some privacy concerns about that. But obviously, privacy is not really a worry for enterprises, right? Because they know who their employees are. Um, but as far as kind of um, you know, some of the more enterprise. Uh, 
specific things around like auditability and things like that. Like, let me take a step back. When I talked about like what our developers said was easy around WebAuthn and kind of the implementation piece, the actual on-device implementation piece is really well spelled out. There's all this other stuff that's around it. And we approach it from kind of a customer standpoint, which is when do you prompt a customer for a pass key and how do you store those public keys and how do you, um, you know, enable people to turn it on and off easily, um, admins and things like that in our backend. That's all ill-defined. In some ways, that's a, that's a parallel to OAuth, right? Where OAuth defines the login process very well, but doesn't define account recovery at all. It doesn't actually define the authentication thing at all, right? Like you can be OAuth compliant and have someone um, basically log in with just a username and no credentials at all. That would still be an OAuth grant because the, the actual authentication event isn't defined at all. So WebAuth then has these like wide blue spaces or gray spaces, or I don't even know what you call <laughs> Scary them. Scary spaces. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Shadows, right? To, to get back to the intro, you've got shadows around WebAuthn, just like you do around OAuth 2.1 or 2.0, and that's where you're getting a lot of innovation around people kind of solving these problems. I will say, John, to get to circle back after some time to the original question, I'm not aware of like how enterprises are dealing with this other than the attestation stuff and the cross-platform nature of, of it. And so that's not using passkeys tied to your Mac uh, or tied to a device. It's, it's the external device that you pay the 30 bucks for and then you kind of can run around with. Sounds like there's going to be some uh, RFC editing in the future. Some new, new numbers need to come down the pipeline to answer some of these questions. Totally. Um, well, I, you know, RFCs are can be pretty long-winded. They're a bit more than three words, Dan, but uh, you know the drill here. Near the end of every uh, interview this year, I've been asking our guests to describe AppSec in three words, and uh, you have a second go at this response. I'm curious what you, wh where your mind is today. Yeah, uh, and thanks for sharing um, what I said last time, and I think this time it's going to be knowing your users. And I think that that's kind of a fundamental thing for application security is knowing who your users are and knowing who aren't your users. Awesome. And for those of you who haven't, uh, didn't remember the first one, go check out episode 225, or I'll give you the spoiler, it was protect your users. So um, I love the user-focused um, uh, thrust of, of this uh, this attention, Dan. And also enjoy this conversation. I think we kept uh, John's head in the conversation as well without getting too uh, deep in the weeds of what, what, what developers maybe don't care about as much. Okay. Yeah, no, it was super fun. It was wide ranging and I think, I hope that your listeners enjoyed it. We hope so too. And we have a bunch of those links that Dan mentioned too in our show notes. So please go check out those show notes as well. And uh, let us know questions because we'd love to revisit this topic, but to figure out what angle we should revisit it on. We don't want to just repeat ourselves. Uh, so thank you once again, Dan. Thank you, John. Thank you for everybody else. We're going to take a quick break and return with news of the week. 